You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hi, I'm Shelley MacArthur Everett, and you're listening to Marketing News Canada. I would like to acknowledge that I am broadcasting from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, Squamish, Stolo, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. Today, I'm excited to welcome our next guest, Tanis Peranto. Tanis is an actor and producer and was born and raised in Peace River, Alberta, and is a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta from Region 6. As a lifelong athlete, Tanis was never a stranger to performance. She was a competitive figure skater for 15 years and was cast in a local production of The Sound of Music at a young age. Tanis now lives out her dual passion for performing and representing her Indigenous heritage through a number of high-profile roles on hit TV shows including Billions, FBI Most Wanted, Designated Survivor, and House of Cards. Her production company now focuses on uplifting contemporary Indigenous stories and smashing harmful Indigenous stereotypes. Her inaugural film, A Big Black Space, won her number of prestigious awards and garnered a broadcasting deal in Arte in Germany, France, and Belgium, and has screened at events and colleges and universities all over North America. She is now developing multiple Indigenous-led series and features. Hi, Tanis. So great to see you. Thank you so much for joining me. Hi, thank you for having me. So it's a pleasure to have you today, Tanis. And like I said, it's a little bit different than our typical interviews where we're focused a lot on on marketing specifically, but I'm really interested to hear about your background, both as an actor and a producer. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you came to be. Sure. I'm from Peace River, Alberta. Born and raised, I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 6, which is the Peace River area. I am an actor and a producer, but was not always. (laughs) I was an athlete growing up, actually, and I went to U of A in Edmonton for my bachelor's of physical education to potentially do athletic therapy and like become a trainer on, you know, on the bench sort of thing. But then in my last year of that degree, I had one more elective to fill outside the faculty and I came across Drama 101 and I thought that looked fun. So let me take Mm -hmm. that. So I did. And then that was when I got bit by the acting bug and finished my degree, my phys ed degree, got it and started acting after that. And then fast forward many, many years, I went back to school to grad school and got my MFA in acting in uh, New York. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your first role and how that happened? Sure. As actors, I feel like there's first roles that most of us get that are very small, independent things you'll never see, which mine were. And then there's like your first big role, like either small mm-hmm. role on your a big, big production. Break, so to speak. Not quite even, like even before that. I mean, some actors are really lucky and they get that right away. But then there's, it seems to be this like ladder, the stepping stone where you book your first co-star on a big show or your first guest star on a big show. And so for me, that that's kind of the experience where I feel like that's where my career kind of changed was my first um, role on a big show, which happened to be a big role on that show, which was House of Cards. Mm-hmm. It was a guest star in season two. I think it was 207 possibly, but that was, yeah, the first like really big deal for me. Mm-hmm. That is a big deal for sure. Yeah. 
So tell me a little bit about how it was to play that role. And you've represented a lot of, you know, yourself as an Indigenous individual and what that meant to you. Yeah, that was House of Cards was a really great experience. I was nervous, of course, because it was my first like big role and it was a native role. It was a made up tribe. They made up for the show. But my experience on the show was amazing. I shot that in Baltimore and I had to work with Michael Kelly, who plays Doug Stamper on the show. And he was fantastic. Such a veteran, but such a warm, grounded, welcoming person for someone who was new to that world, stepping on that set. I was a little intimidated at first because my director was James Foley, who's like huge. And like did Glenn, Gary Glenn Ross and so many other big films and shows. And so... And the scenes that I had to do were intimate scenes with Michael somewhat. So there was that on top of it. But everybody was really amazing and really supportive. And as soon as I met Michael, he sort of, I feel like he sort of took me under his wing and made sure I was comfortable and introduced me to everybody. And the day that I got there, I wasn't shooting, but they brought me pretty much from the hotel to the set so I could meet James and uh, Jamie, they call him just to say hello and like talk a little bit about the next day. And they were in the middle of shooting different scenes of that episode that day. And that scene they just happened to be shooting was uh, Kevin Spacey and Robin Wright in a, in a bedroom scene. Just, mm-hmm. I think Kevin Spacey's character is playing with this little model of like military movements and things like that. And so I just got, that was my first experience on set was just to sit there and watch Robin Wright and Kevin Spacey work, which is amazing. And then I shot for the next day and then I was back in New York and then had to go back again three weeks later to shoot the other scenes. But it was great because when I auditioned, I went in thinking, you know, looking at the sign-in sheet and all the other actors who were more well-known than me, I thought, well, I'm never going to get this. So-and-so just signed in and auditioned before me. And then I remember getting a phone call from my manager at the time saying that they're really interested in me, but they wanted to, I auditioned with two scenes and they wanted to add two more scenes. And would I be okay with quote unquote, a little bit of the scenes might have nudity in it, but then it, it ended up being a little bit of side bum, they called it. Because my character's like laying in bed, but like the sheets are like kind of off, but you can't really see anything. And anyway, so there's this whole back and forth between like what I was comfortable with and what they wanted to add. And there was over like two weeks that happened. And then finally I got the phone call that I had booked it. So that was awesome. super exciting. And Bo Williman, who's the the creator and the showrunner, he was there the whole time and he was fantastic. He was, I feel like that character, there was a scene that actually ended up getting cut and there was a few lines in a couple of the scenes that got cut, but I had that material to work with in my audition. And even though they cut those when we shot, it, I feel like it was just written with such complexity and I had so much to work with that. Um, and I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but uh, I just felt so supported as an actor to be able to play that character because of what Bo and the rest of the writers had put in the script. So it was a really, I have no complaints about that experience. It was just wonderful. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And so this was Tammy mm-hmm. that you were playing. Yeah. And would you say that that you had shaped the role or what came first hmm. when you were auditioning? Did you feel connected to that character already or did it come later? I definitely did because she's a waitress and I was waitressing at the yeah. time. So that was pretty easy. 
And yeah, when I was waitressing sometimes, and I was actually just talking to a former waitress friend of mine yesterday too about this, that like you're kind of acting when you're waitressing sometimes because you are <laughs> right. So it, I feel like it was, it was a good fit. And the casting director, Julie Schubert was really amazing. So this is, you know, in the before times when we would go into the room to audition and she gave me mm. a little bit of direction to do one of the scenes again. And then I followed her direction and we chatted in the room and I also feel like when you, and I think a lot of actors do, when you, every character you play has a little bit of you in them just because it's Mm -hmm. you playing that, like it's just inherently there. So with this character, it was interesting because although she was native, it didn't really touch on her being native. Like she was a waitress who just happened to be indigenous and it wasn't really brought Mm -hmm. up. She worked for the casino and one of the scenes that actually got cut was um, a scene between my character and Gil Birmingham's character who played my boss and he was threatening to disenroll me because of the information that Michael ended up getting out of me. But they didn't keep that scene. I guess it wasn't necessary. I'm not sure. So that was the only sort of card that you could see that she was actually native. So for me as a native actor, that's nice to just be able, like, that's kind of the goal really is to be able to just play characters Mm -hmm. who, and maybe they are indigenous, maybe they aren't, but it's the focus Mm -hmm. isn't that, you know, we can just be, we can, yeah. Absolutely. And when we're talking about representation, I think you're right. That is the goal. The goal is to have Native or Indigenous actors that are playing roles that you would see in everyday life, not just playing the roles that have to be prototyped in a certain race. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So take me through a couple of your other roles. One probably that you're best well-known for is your role in Billions. How has that experience been for you? That also amazing. Honestly, all the like big four or five that I've done so far have all been fantastic, but Billions was really special that was here in New York also. And I was just cast for one episode, a guest star in season four, episode 408. It's called Fight Night. Mm-hmm. And it was really two really great scenes. I got to play opposite Paul Giamatti, which is like just a dream. He's amazing. Like I can die now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he's so awesome too. He's just like super grounded and, and friendly and just like regular old person. <laughs> but he was, he's one of those actors that I found that playing opposite him, I would catch myself like watching him because he's so good. And he, you know, and like snapping out of being like, okay, get back in the scene. Like you can't just sit here and watch Paul Giamatti act. You have to be in the scene also. But yeah, he's just, he's so good. But that was really great because once again, the showrunners, Brian Koppelman and David Levine are just wonderful, wonderful people. And we connected on a lot of different things outside of, you know, the show and acting just personally. And, and everyone that I met on the set was awesome. And I think that has like a trickle down effect because of, you know, they are the showrunners and who they hire under them and so on and so forth. And so it was just a really great experience. And I was only written in for one episode, two scenes, and then they ended up bringing me back for season five for one episode, which was amazing. It's like an amazing dream also. Yeah. And it's just one scene that, and it ended up being the first scene of the episode, but when they, when they wrote it, the original draft I had read, they had switched the scenes around and that happens. I think the second scene in that episode was the first scene. And then my scene was the second scene. And then when I got the shooting script, my scene was the first scene. So it opens on like my face (laughs) the whole episode. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, that's cool. But Yeah. yeah, that was really great too. That 
scene, that wedding scene took like three days to shoot. <laughs> it's very powerful. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of people. <sighs> and so you now have made the journey from actor to producer. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what inspired you to become a producer. Getting tired of waiting by the phone as an actor. <laughs> I can relate to that. Yeah. Back in like around 2014, 2015, So I shot House of Cards in 2013. It came out in 2014, like at Valentine's Day, actually. And then over that next year, you know, when you book something that's like kind of a big thing for you and you're hoping more things come along and they don't, then, and this happens, like this, the life of an actor is this roller coaster, right? And so these ups and downs that you experience can be weighty. And I wanted to find ways to make those ups and downs, not so drastic and just like have the wave kind of go like this. And in order to do that, I thought, well, I have to be acting. So maybe I'll just start making short films. And around that time, a friend of mine who I'd actually hadn't met in person yet, but we were just connected like on Twitter. I think his name is Andrew Janelle and he's a writer just outside of Vancouver from Peter's First Nation. And he ended up sending me a handful of his short films, like scripts to read. And I just fell in love with his writing. I just really connected to it. It was funny. And I really love the way he touches on indigenous issues. But like we were kind of talking before, like these people are just, they're people, they just happen to be indigenous. And so of course, inherently issues will come up because they are indigenous, but it doesn't focus heavily on them. It's not so like trauma focused, which I personally, I'm hungry to see more of is writing like Andrews and also in genres that I feel we rarely see when it comes to indigenous, um, indigenous content. Like he writes in horror and thrillers and Mm sci-fi and romance and comedy. So he sent me a bunch of scripts and I love them. And I thought, okay, maybe I'll start shooting some of these. And I then wrote something of my own and I'm not a writer, but my thought process was I had never produced before. And so if I was going to mess something up, I didn't want it to be someone else's. I wanted it to be something I wrote. So (laughs) I ended up turning a short story that I had told in a rehearsal with Spider-Woman Theater when I was working with them into, I just took that story that I told and turned it into a screenplay format basically. And it was this little like 10 minute short. Um, And that's what I produced first and it did well in a bunch of festivals and it got broadcasting deal um, with Arte and Germany, France and Belgium. And it's called A Big Black Space. But then after that, I just started making a bunch of Andrew's shorts and just by getting friends together, like-minded people, trying to find like-minded people to make content together. And I made a handful, I think probably four or so, and then got burnt out because making films with no money can be fun, but it can be very draining. And so I took a break. Yeah. And then fast forward to the pandemic and I've been spending a lot of time back home in Alberta and started digging into like all the funding that's available there with Canada wide, Alberta specific, and also indigenous specific. And there is a lot. And so I incorporated my production company last year and I kind of got bit by the producing bug again, but this time going into it, I wanted to level up my producing game. And so that's why Mm -hmm. I started to look into grants and funding and things like that. And then I started applying to mentorships. So I got a mentorship through the Alberta Media Producers, Ampia for short, (laughs) and I have a mentorship with them. And then I applied to the Banff Diversity of Voices Fellowship. So I got into that and I got to attend Banff Media Festival this year virtually, but it was still amazing. I got to meet so many different 
buyers and broadcasters and um, bigger production companies and people that can help me fill in the lack of information and knowledge I feel like I had from going from, you know, making, producing with no money to producing up here with a budget and how all those pieces of the puzzle fit together. Still learning all that stuff, wrapping my head around it. And then I attended CMPA, the Canadian Media Producers Association. They have a yearly event called Primetime, which I'd never attended before, but ended up getting a free pass to and did their like networking thing and met some people in those rooms. And yeah, so now I've been partnering again with Andrew on series and features that he has written, but pitching to broadcasters and production companies and also partnering with another writer in Canada, um, Sarah Dodd, on a series that we're pitching right now too. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Very cool. And I have to say your first short, A Big Black Space, it wasn't just a little short. I mean, that really, I would say you won so many awards, lots of recognition, obviously, had a really powerful message as well. And I think it resonated with a lot of people. So you should be really proud of that. And and certainly that was a really great springboard, I think, for so many opportunities that have opened up, not because of sheer luck, obviously, but because of such hard work and dedication to your craft. So I am. Yeah. Thank you. Congratulations for that, for sure. So tell me about this new project, what you're in the process of pitching right now. What does that look like? Sure. Well, there's a various many and without going into my whole pitch with everything. <laughs> yeah. Reveal all your secrets. <laughs> we have four different series. We have three one-hour dramas that have either like a sci-fi touch to them or like a thriller. And then we have a 30-minute comedy that is very like character-driven, kind of like re- not reality and like reality TV-based, but like just real life kind of comedy, all Indigenous-led. And then we have like... 10 features that we're currently like getting packages together. So building pitch decks and things like that. But like I said, yeah, we have a couple different horrors. We have an action sort of in the realm of a revenge action thriller, kind of like The Crow, but like it's a woman instead of Brandon Lee. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And a dude, we have a romance, but it's like a older woman, younger man. And these are all indigenous led as well. And what, yeah, we have a, a lot of horror and some zombies, indigenous futurism. That's what I like to call a lot of oh, it. And then this other series that I'm pitching with Sarah, it's a murder mystery in the vein of Mayor of Easttown. And how do you think representation has changed in the industry over the past few years for the better or for the worse? I think that it's getting better for sure. We're seeing more of it. We're seeing more good representation. I feel like there's still some that isn't so good, but I feel like the better representation I'm seeing more of, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. It's really great to see how many different shows are out there now that 
Mm-hmm. Like we have a native sitcom. <laughs> Finally, you know, that's yeah, really that's exciting amazing. to me. And that's yeah. Rutherford Falls, which I'm referring to, which I think is just a fantastic show. And that's like a dream job. I would love to be on that show. I just think it's so well-written. <laughs> but yeah, I think- Producers take note. <laughs> I think it's come a long way. And I feel like we're on, just like on the verge of it just exploding So I'm excited to see like more and more of it just keep coming. And that's what one of my goals is like, as I said, like when I started producing, it was just because I wanted as a vehicle to act in. And although that is still the case for me now, it's more to me now. I want to be, my mission as a producer is to support and uplift contemporary indigenous voices and indigenous stories and, and smash the tired, harmful stereotypes that are out there. And mm-hmm. to be a part of the the pipeline and the pathway to create space for other Indigenous creatives to also have opportunity. So that's really exciting for me yeah. to look ahead and think like, I Absolutely. might get a green, I'm going to get a green light on a show and like be able to make it and and find new talent, mm-hmm. young talent, older talents, and all blo- above, above the line, below the line. Like that's really exciting to me. Yeah. And are you seeing a sparked interest in the younger talent that are coming up. Yeah. That are coming to you or approaching you about these opportunities. Definitely. I work as a tribal liaison for a theater company in Northern California called Alter Theater. And they have an Indigenous youth theater arts learning project where they hold workshops. They were going to do them in person and then pandemic. So they're doing them virtually now. But we did actually do an Mm in-person acting camp last year. So my job as the tribal liaison is like to do outreach and get these workshops into as many communities as possible. And especially like on reservations where the access might not be as good as urban based communities. And so I've gotten to see, yeah, all these amazing talent, young, young talent who are, who are excited to about the work that they want to do, but are also excited about the represented representation that they are now seeing on TV and yeah, to be able to tell them like those opportunities are, are not far away from you. All they need is the connection. All they need is that access because there are people out there looking for these native youth. So that's really exciting to me. I'm also working in freelancing as a casting assistant as well for a New York casting director. And that's been really great too, because I'm sort of building a roster of native directors, playwrights, actors, and we want to build it out to include like everything, like stage managers. There are also jobs, like when you think of Native youth, and sure, a lot of them want to perform and write, but they might not know that there are other positions that exist in the industry, in theater and in film and TV that they have skills for that they could look into developing. Because as someone who's an actor, <laughs> you always, until you, you know, can make your money just acting, you're going to have to do something yeah. on the side. And and for me, I'm still doing that. I'm working in casting. I'm working with this theater company, but it's also like I'm working in my community too. So it's work that is yeah. really meaningful to me anyways. And I would still do it. But anyways, this is all to say that there's a whole complex and 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 very deep world in the industry that I feel like the I want to expose the youth to so they can explore as many possibilities to work in the arts. That's amazing. So inspiring. <laughs> yeah. What would you like to see in the industry? What would you like to see change? And um, what do you think we could still be working on? I would like to see 
I guess it's repeating kind of what I said before. And it's not just because it serves my <laughs> my goals as a producer, but it's just what I'm personally more hungry for because I feel like we've seen a lot of the historical stories. I want to see more contemporary, more futurism and in genres that we don't normally see. I want to see reimagined stories and see new ways to incorporate culture and stories in ways that we haven't seen before, I guess less traditional, so to speak, or, you know, just what we, t- I feel like we've seen a, a lot of in the past. I want to see sci-fi. I want to see thrillers. I want to see, yeah. I want to see romance. Give me a, ro- give me an yeah. indigenous romance, a rom-com even. A good you know? rom-com. We need our indigenous Hallmark <laughs> movies. Yeah. 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 That's what I nice. want to see more of. Mm-hmm. Nice. I did narrate a bit for a podcast, but I have since cut ties with them. Okay. And I'm fine to talk about it a little bit. Actually, I would, it turned out to be a situation where, so it was a a non-native person, a white woman who had created this and who started to build an indigenous team because it was indigenous content. And we worked on it very hard for three years for free and um, ended up, in my opinion, being exploited and have left. And this happens you know, and yeah. it's something that should be talked about. And I'm happy to have you leave this in there because it's, I, it's something that as an indigenous creative that we can get taken advantage of a lot. And especially now mm-hmm. as a producer who is producing at the level that I'm producing at now, we get approached by non-native people, especially like in Canada, where there's, if you can attach an indigenous person, like you get access to that funding potentially because there's funding set aside for indigenous people. And so you have to be really careful with who you partner with because you can get taken advantage of. And so luckily for me with that, I didn't have too much invested. I didn't have anything financially invested. And although I did invest time, I feel like I got out at the right time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Time and emotional baggage and emotional work Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. I mean, I think from from my perspective, it's really important that the representation is not just because of tokenism mm-hmm. and it really is for the right reasons. And and mm-hmm. certainly, you know, you have to pay people what they're worth, no matter what background they're coming from mm-hmm. or race, religion, any of those things. So yeah. I think- and when you're working with an indigenous people and you're not listening to them and you're just trying to replace them with people who will listen to you as the non-indigenous creator that's the situation that happened to me and not that I was replaced, but because I decided to leave on my own, but yeah, there was friction with what the native people on the team, how we felt and what we thought and with what the non-native creator, how they felt and thought. Mm -hmm. And we're like, this Mm -hmm. isn't right. Like she's not even listening to us and ended up centering herself a lot. So we had to leave. And I talk about it just so other indigenous people can maybe just remember that as a heads up, you know, anytime they, they meet with a non-native creator and not that it happens to everybody, but it is something to be wary of. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. As a white woman, I'm, I'm very aware that, you know, I have a lot of learning to do and I'm very conscious that I'm doing that learning on my own time and not expecting other people to teach and do the work for me to teach me how to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I've been very consciously trying to lead in my life. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think that's really important for everyone to take note in that way. Yeah. And I appreciate you saying that because that's really important too. Because also saying that makes me think of like my Instagram, you know, if I post something about 
an Indigenous issue, the DMs, you'll get people who just reach out and say, well, what should I do? And what can, you know, and I don't, Mm -hmm. I'm not your resource for that. Like that's easy. You can find out that you can just Google these days, you know, or Mm -hmm. look up hashtags. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's to put the labor on an Indigenous person to do that is, is not the way to go. But also I just thought of on the flip side of like the experience I just talked about with the podcast is that working with Sarah on this show, Sarah Dodd, that I'm pitching that series with, it started out in a really good way because Sarah is not Indigenous, but the pilot was written as a part of the Pacific Screenwriters Program. I think it was called, this was before her and I partnered together, but it had, uh, she was a showrunner in residence for this program and she led a group of diverse writers, two or three of them, I think were native and they wrote this together. And so to have a project start out in a good way like that for me is, is very, very meaningful and is exciting for me to become a part of. That's great. Yeah. Good. Some, a positive good news story then that came out of that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we're going to roll into some rapid fire questions if you're up for that. Sure. Awesome. Okay. So I'm going to go through them. Okay. First word that comes to your mind. And yeah, let's get started. Okay. What was your first job? I was a cashier at the Met store in Peace River. Are you a night owl or an early bird? I used to be a night owl. Now I'm an early bird. (laughs) Are you a cat or a dog person? I'm both. I had a cat and she lived a great 14 and a half years and she passed away last year. And now I have a dog. (laughs) What was the first thing that you either sold or marketed or told a story about? Myself as an actor, getting my first headshots, getting an agent. But I would say my first short film, A Big Black Space, because I had to do a kick. I did it. I didn't have to, but I ended up doing a Kickstarter after to recoup the cost because I just kind of put everything on my credit card and like (laughs) I crossed my fingers. Um, But there was a lot of marketing involved with that. And I did it myself. Great. What's your favorite word right now? Probably the various names I call my dog. (laughs) Doggo, Bubba, Butta. His name is Nico. (laughs) Dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Milk chocolate. What was the last charity you supported either financially or with your time and why? That would be Pilots to the Rescue, which is a nonprofit that they fly to kill shelters, although apparently you're not supposed to call them kill shelters anymore. I don't know what the other term is. Um, They fly them from those shelters to non-kill, to regular shelters where they can be adopted and brought to forever homes. So I got to go on a mission with them, but they also uh, rescue cats. So we flew to, oh boy, all we've had like three different spots all around here. Um, they had cats from Maryland. We went to Philadelphia, but yeah, we flew all over and we rescued 44 cats in like this little plane. And I sat in the back with all these cats and these 44 cats. (laughs) Yeah. And their little holders, but there was like three in one and four in another. Cause there were a lot of like moms with babies and not tiny babies, but um, yeah. yeah, So they're, they're a great, great organization. Can you still hear them ringing in your ears? (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh, these poor kitties, but they, they are all ready to be adopted. In their new shelters. That's such a nice story. Yeah. 
a movie that you love? Oh, I would have to say actually the crow that I mentioned before is one of my, one of my favorites for sure. Apropos for the season with Halloween just around the corner. <laughs> yeah, I actually dressed up as the girl one season when I was a waitress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, I could just, yeah, it's it's in my top five. There's a few. Good. <laughs> I'm going to have to try try that one again or, or rewatch yeah. it ahead of the weekend. Mm-hmm. If you weren't an actor or producer, what would you be doing? I don't know. <laughs> traveling. <laughs> I don't know how, but I don't know. I don't really have like a, you know, I have the, the side jobs that I do, but I think, yeah, probably working in my community somehow. What is an app on your phone that you can't live without? My email. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> or is it one that I have to download specially? <laughs> well, that's where the offers come in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. It's important to know where that comes from. Mm -hmm. What is the best thing that you purchased for under $10? Hmm. I have to like look around my apartment. Oh, I would say actually these little dog booties that I got for Nico. They were the first booties that could really stay on because the, and they're the ones that have like a drawstring on them and they were under $10. And I rave about them to all the dog parents that I know in my building. Nice. Uh, you know what? I have the same ones, but the kid version for my daughter. <laughs> got the drawstring. They're perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I can relate. What is your most treasured possession? Nico. <laughs> if you had a superpower, what would it be? Oh, this one. I, I would say teleportation. What is the last thing you Googled? Mm, I don't remember. I can check. It might've been overnight. <laughs> it was overnight, like simple overnight steel cut oats. Cause I, I, I've been making overnight oats lately and I bought steel cut for the first time. So I had to yes. get the like ratios correct and it worked. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> what is the most important thing that you've ever changed your mind about? Actually, yeah. Uh, going back to school, deciding to go back to school to school, to go to grad school. I had talked myself out of it for many, many years because I, up until that point, I had only, I was starting to take acting classes, but they were sort of weekly on-camera classes without a lot of depth to them. And I felt so, and just with the frequency, I felt like, or infrequency, I couldn't really break through my personal barriers to really flourish as an actor. And I knew I had to be in an immersive program but I didn't want to go back to school. And I was like, oh, I'm already whatever age I was. And I kept talking myself out of it. But then I had a conversation with a friend who was the same age as me, who I grew up with. Shout out Marnie Wilkes. She had told me she had recently decided to go back to school to be a nurse. And she did this really condensed program, like 20 months or something. And she decided to change careers. And I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. She had kids. She was married. And she maybe not kids at the time, but she was married. And I thought, well, if Marnie did it, you know, and I didn't have any debt because I'd paid off my first student loan. I thought this is the best time for me to do that. So I decided to go back to school and that's how I made it to New York and have a career. Amazing. Yeah. It obviously worked (laughs) out so well for you. (laughs) Before we finish for today, is there anything that you would like to share with up and coming actors, people that are just getting started in the industry, any advice or words of wisdom that you'd like to share? 
yeah, just keep going. (laughs) Find other things to do to feed your creativity. If acting is a thing you really want to do and you're not getting opportunities to act, then you can create those yourself. You can write. You can also just practice. The act of auditioning is really what our job is. Booking the job is the icing on the cake, but you will audition so much more, especially in the beginning, than you will actually working. And so that has to be your work. If you can let go of the outcome of the audition, if you can just treat the audition as like an acting class and prepare and bring your best work, pretend that it's your first take on set when you step in front of the camera and you go, because that is what their casting director and producers are going to be watching is they're going to be watching you as if this is what you're going to bring to the set. And so it has to be that good. You have to be that into it. And so if you can approach auditions that way, that's what's really helped me. And that was something that Billy Crudup, I heard say on a panel once that really struck with me. But all that is to say, if you don't write, that is something that you can use as as a tool to act as is your auditions. And you can challenge yourself. You can do like a self-tape challenge where you do a self-tape a day for like two weeks or um, do like 15 self-tapes in a month. But that's what we have to get good at these days are self-tapes because there's we're starting to get back into the room with auditioning, but that's really rare and it's pretty much just for plays. So getting good at self-taping. And if you can find, yeah, other things that feed you creatively to help make those ups and downs not so up and down, that I feel like really, really helps. And also <laughs> now that I work in casting a little bit, we have to be able to find you online. And if you, so you don't have to, pay for a website. Even if you, if you have your Instagram or a Facebook, whatever you have these days, we need to be able to find you to be able to offer you a job. If you don't have representation or to ask you to audition, if we're looking for your specific type or skill set. So if you go to my Instagram, you can see, I actually just made a, a story about it might not be on there anymore, but I put all my reels on my Instagram profile. So that's like a free website. You could put your work there. You could even put like a really great self-tape that you did that if you don't have actual material as a reel yet, you can put that on there. But also being on casting profiles like Actors Access, there's a certain amount of free things you can put up there. And that is like the number one thing that casting directors and film and TV go to, to find people. That's all such great advice. Thank you. I feel like we could do a whole section of the interview just on oh, yeah. <laughs> advice for the future. Yep. I've done business, like the business side of acting, like um, workshops as well, because like, you don't get taught that mm-hmm. in school. You don't get taught that in grad school no. or in conservatory. You get taught how to act and other things, but the business is, and the business is like the biggest part of it. Absolutely. Thank you, Tannis. My pleasure. It's been really great chatting with you. It is. I learned a lot and uh, I was inspired. I like to hear that. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. 
we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.